You're listening to episode two of Speaking with Deacon, Family Life. Speaking with Deacon is a production of the Perusia Podcast Network in partnership with Voice of Charity Australia and EWTN Asia Pacific. Join us as we discuss strategies that will empower us to announce the gospel of the Lord daily through our words and deeds. This is Speaking with Deacon. Hello, and thanks for joining us again on Speaking with Deacon. I am Mark Griffin, your host, and joining me as always is the wonderful Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Deacon Harold, thanks for being with us again. It's great to be with you again, Mark. Uh, always enjoy our time together. Yeah, I really enjoyed our last uh, discussion revolving around evangelization. And the direction I'd like to take with this one sort of flows on a bit from the end of that one. And we talked a bit about the domestic church. So in this one, we're going to speak a little bit about family life. I think it's fair to say that the family is, is well and truly under attack in today's culture. And so we're going to talk about engaging some countercultural strategies that we can implement to help our families thrive despite the cultural challenges and even maybe plant a few seeds in the culture with an aim to growing towards something that's a little more family friendly. Maybe a good model to base today's discussion on would be the model of the Holy Family. So, so Deacon, initially, can you tell us a little bit about the Holy Family and, and what they faced in their family life and how some of their, their struggles and some of their achievements and some of their joys can be a model for where we're at in our families today? Yeah, well, uh, first we're going to take a quick look at why we have the Holy Family, right? Because the, the first family was, was Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. Um, and we saw that when Satan went after God's creation, what did he go after first? He went after the family, right? And, and so he's trying to destroy covenant relationship with God. And that's really the key to family life is covenant relationship, because that relationship models the relationship that God wants to have with us. And so the family is the kind of microcosm of that covenant relationship that, that God wants to have with each and every one of us. And so what is covenant relationship? Um, we live in a culture that says that relationships are basically contracts between people. Like if you go to the store, you buy a, a mobile, you get a contract with the mobile, right? And if the contract, and if someone doesn't live up to their end of the contract, then you end the agreement. Uh, and so in our culture, we, we have different expressions of that. Like for example, there's friends with benefits is one of the ways that that's expressed this contractual language. But when God wants to establish a relation with us, he doesn't establish a contract. He establishes a covenant. A contract is an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of persons, right? A contract says, this is yours and this is mine. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone. And that someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love. That is free and faithful and total and fruitful. Right? It's a love that gives everything. It's a love that holds nothing back because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us from the cross. Right? He, gave, he gave everything. And that's exactly what he expects from us. So Satan now is the author of death. He has to destroy life. And so he goes after the family, which is modeled on the life of, of God within the Trinity in, a, in an earthly sense. Sure. Um, because... Uh, uh, you know, just the way the love of the father and the son, you know, uh, is so powerful, it generates a third, which is the Holy Spirit, who gives love and life back to the father and the son. Uh, in the same way, fathers and mothers, obviously in a, in a very earthly way, right? Fathers and mothers, the love between them is so powerful, it gives life to a third. And then that child gives life, love back to his, to their parents, right? So, so in a sense, the, the family on earth is the image and likeness of the family of heaven, right? Again, anticipating that the having the relationship that we'll have with God forever in heaven. That's what the family on earth anticipates. And so Satan has to go after the family to destroy it. He goes after the woman first and her husband was supposed to serve, protect, defend her. And Adam didn't do that. So sinning came into the world. And so now God establishes a holy family again, this, the, with the woman, right? The blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> and, and this time with the man, St. Joseph, who does serve, protect and defend his wife and his family. Everything that God asked him to do, he did faithfully, right? So why is Holy Family important? First of all, we have to understand that they were married, right? And that's important 
because in uh, Matthew's gospel says that they were betrothed, right? They were betrothed. And betrothal was the first stage of a two-stage marriage process at the time of Jesus. So the first um, part is called the Edusine. And the Edusine is what establishes the covenant between the man and the woman. It was a ceremony that was done between the, the man and the woman that was overseen by a rabbi and witnessed by two shoshbim, as they're, as they're called, uh, basically witnesses, best man made of honor. That established the covenant. The only way the Edusin could be broken is by death or divorce, right? And we even see that in Matthew's gospel where it says, you know, uh, he was going to divorce her quietly. Well, you can't divorce someone unless you're already married to him, right? So the second part of the, uh, uh, of the marriage ceremony is called the Nisuin. And so the, what happened was a girl would go back to live with her parents after marriage because she was somewhere between 13, 14, 16, 15, 16, somewhere in there. Um, and that may seem strange to us. <laughs> you know, that's kind of young. But in the Jewish culture, when a, when a young, when a, a girl was old enough to have her menstrual cycle, that meant she was old enough to have children, which means she was old enough to get married. Um, so tradition tells us Mary was probably around 16, 15 or 16 years old when she was betrothed to Joseph. But then what would happen is a young girl would go back to live with her parents while her husband prepared a home for them to live in. Um, he would typically build an addition onto his parents' house or with the, the way they said it, onto his father's house, right? Onto the parents' house. That's where you get the idea of mother-in-law suite comes from, right? <laughs> so that would take eight, 10 months, maybe a year. And so they would have the, the Nisui where he would process back to the, 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 the town where the girl lived. They would have a seven-day wedding feast and then there would be a procession with her and he would take his new wife into their home. And that's called the Nisuin. So when the angel came to the Blessed Mother, it was after the Edusin, as Matthew's gospel clearly shows, after the Edusin and before the Nisuin. Um, it says, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. So coming together means that before they lived in the same house. So we know that was in between, but they're already legally married. Um uh, and so Joseph then has to trust God, right? Because Joseph, one of the reasons why Joseph may have wanted to divorce Mary was not because he thought she cheated on, on him, had an affair, but because he goes, wait a minute, God is doing something here. I don't want to get in God's way. So I need to remove myself from this situation. But that's when the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, no, God needs you. You know, uh, and he needs a, a husband and a father. Jesus needs a model an earthly role model, right? That to, to understand, he can understand earthly father. That's beautiful because God could have taken, taken care of Mary by herself, right? But, he, but it was important that the, the, that the father be there as part of the family. That's an extremely important concept today, Mark, because we have so many people that are saying, you don't need husbands, you don't need wives, you don't need mothers, you don't need fathers. All you need is love, right? Try to reduce it to a Beatles song. <laughs> um, but, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it, it, it both are important. And so, um, so now Joseph has to, uh, defend the, the, the child. Well, for, first of all, before that, <laughs> uh, he, the child has, is, is, uh, he has to go back to Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. They had to go back to Bethlehem because the way that Caesar did the census, you have to go back to your family, the, the land of your family of origin, which was the city of David, right? Which is Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew, which means the house of bread. So they get there and what happens, right? They, they get to the hotel. The concierge takes them up to the penthouse suite and they've got chocolates and champagne. They're waiting. Okay, when the baby, when the king is born, tell us we can celebrate. No, right? Oh, come on. That didn't happen. They were homeless, right? And there's a, a parallel because there are a lot of homeless families today, right? Um, and, and then uh, he has to defend the life of the child because Herod wants to kill all the children, the male children who are two years and under. And so uh, Joseph has to take the family to Egypt that, that, that not only leave their, their, their city and their province, but it leave their country and go to another country um, to keep the child safe. And there's many people who have to leave their countries right, because of war or famine or corrupt governments or uh, civil war or natural disaster that try to find opportunities um, in other countries to, to raise their family. So that, that happens today too. Um, then at some point we could surmise that, uh, 
that G- Jesus, uh, that Joseph is uh, dies, right? Because um, after the finding in the temple, um, there's no more signs of Joseph, right? There's no more Joseph sightings. Um, and and the, the, the clues for me um, with regard that Joseph might be deceased at the presentation of the, in the temple, you know, uh, Simeon blesses both Joseph and Mary, but then only gives the prophecy to Mary. This child is destined for the fall and the rise of many and the sign to be spoken against the sword shall pierce your own soul. So that the thoughts of many hearts may be laid there. That only is only for Mary. Cause again, the thing is Joseph won't be around Finding, uh, wedding feast of Cana. Joseph, Joseph's not there. Would have been very unusual for a family to attend a wedding and the, and the father not be there. There were disciples there. Mary was there, but no Joseph. And then third, of course, on the cross, who does give, who does uh, Jesus give care of his mother to John wouldn't have done that if her husband was still alive to take care of her. So Mary becomes a single mom. God, we don't have those today, do we? Right. And then Mary has to endure what none of us who could even imagine have children ever uh, would even want to think about, because we all believe, of course, that our children are going to outlive us because that's the way it should be. But Mary has to watch her own son suffer and die before her eyes. And that happens to, to, to many people who lose uh, children in childbirth or miscarriage or, um, you know, cancer, you know, after the child is born, you know, and or a car accident or drug overdose or suicide. And, you know, which is a, a deeply painful. So Mary understands that pain. She does. And so, yes, the, 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 the Holy Family definitely can serve as a model for our family life today. Because we often think, oh, they're so perfect because they raised God. Yes, they did raise God, but they were not spared the hardships and the realities of, of family life. And, and, but through that whole, uh, the whole life that they lived, um, they were faithful to God. And that, I think, can serve as a beautiful example for families today. No matter what is going on, to continue to be faithful and trusting God. Absolutely no, and, and yeah, like you say, all the all these correlations that that they they had to to flee to to get away from the culture of death. Mary does at some point become a single mother. Does at some point lose her son. Now it's just not normal that a parent outlives their child. So all these things that they faced, it is it, it is very very much like where we're at today. And so I suppose the, the next question would be based on the fact that the culture is in a similar place in so many ways to where it was then, how is it that this traditional family unit can change? And why is this traditional family unit so important in, in correcting the culture and in, in growing this culture into something a little bit more like maybe what was originally intended? Yeah, see, the thing that I think the culture has forgotten is that we are, instead of being made in the image and likeness of God and remembering that, that we're trying to make God in our own image and likeness or try to remove God totally out of the picture so there is no God. So that, that's one of the two things. Either we're saying, well, God doesn't decide. I decide what sure. it means to be made. I, I'm making God in my own image and likeness. I'm turning God into the God I want him to be or just eliminating God totally. Because when you do that, then you can, do the, the, the quote unquote family becomes whatever you decide it to be, right? Yeah. And there are many of us, of course, that are not in ideal situations. For example, my parents are divorced, mm-hmm. right? I mean, my, I'm sure my mother didn't marry my father saying, wow, I can't wait till he starts drinking. He starts cheating on me and he starts, I mean, that wasn't the intention, right? Uh, so the model that we present as a people of faith um, with, with the, what's the, what the culture says, the nuclear family, or what we call the domestic church with father, mother, and children is not just some, uh, just some, you know, uh, some fantasy ideal thing. I mean, that's the model that God established, right? That's not something that we, that we decided on our own, that we're following the model that God himself established. And again, that, that establishment was so important that when his own son came into the world, that he still had an earthly father, even though, of course, God was God's the father, right? But it was still important that there was an earthly father there. So yes, so some of us may be in imperfect situations. We, we, there may be a single parent because of divorce. You may be a single parent because of abuse or one of the, one of the spouses died or something like that. Um, but again, 
that doesn't mean you don't have a family. <laughs> okay. Uh, what we're talking about is, is, is God's plan. What, 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 you know, a family that doesn't look like father, mother, children um, is, a, is because of this sad and tragic effect mm-hmm. of original sin. Right. I mean, the mm-hmm. death happened because of original sin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these kinds of things that we, that we're seeing in our culture happen because we're still feeling the effects of original sin. Now, Christ came and conquered sin. So the more we follow Christ and we more we follow the model that God set up, um, especially when it comes to the family, the stronger the family will be. Because the strong that we have strong families, Mark, we have a strong church. We have a strong church. We have a strong culture. <laughs> See? But but when we decide that we're God, because remember, that was the temptation of, of uh, for the family by the devil in Genesis 3, you will be like God, right? And, and that's what's happened in our culture today. So now the family is whatever I decide to be. Mm-hmm. So you have women that don't want men at all as part of their family. So they'll, they'll be, do uh, surrogates. They'll become, you know, they'll get um, in vitro fertilization and just raise a child by themselves purpose on purpose because mm-hmm. they don't want to have a man as part of that. And then you have our, our brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted, who just, just two fathers, two mothers, and it's not a, so there's not a mother in the home, not a father in the home. Again, reducing the idea of family to all you need is love. And so you're actually de- depriving that child of the right that that child has to its own mother and father. Because even if you have two people of the, of the same sex in a relationship, you still need to have a person opposite sex to create a child, sure. right? So we can adopt the child again, you're depriving that child of the opportunity of a father and a mother and the gifts that they both bring. And I think that's where the rub comes in, Mark. People don't see, they don't understand what fathers are. They don't understand what mothers are. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, as long as you have two people that love each other. I mean, again, trying to, to reshape the family to look like the culture mm-hmm. instead of trying to get the culture to, to, to look like the family that God created. Sure. And I, and I think that the... Um... The whole idea of the roles, the, the father has his role, the mother has her role. It's so important. And, and with kids myself, I know that there are certain things that, that only their mother can actually satisfy their need or, or vice versa. There's certain things that only I can give them that their mother can't give them. And if you have a couple that, that is a same-sex couple and they they claim well, we love each other we love this children that that might be all well and god but but two mothers can't give the children what they need from a father just likewise two fathers can't give the children from what they need from a mother and it, it even feels weird even needing to to point that out from my perspective but but obviously out there in the world there are a whole lot of circumstances and and as you say they're not circumstances that have come about due to natural happenings, natural circumstances, they're circumstances that are being chosen by people in, in opposition to, to, to God's plan. And, and as you say, this, is, this was Satan's plan to destroy the family. Like He hasn't changed his game plan at all. We just keep falling for it in the culture. And yeah, there's just this, this real, and I was going to talk this about a bit about this later, but I suppose this has come up now, so we'll continue this little bit. But the roles of the family, that there's a reason for each role there's a reason why god made it to be this way and if you if you follow the opinion and, and i heard a priest give this homily a couple of weeks ago on, on something completely different but it applies here and and i probably won't do justice to the point he was making but are you going to trust experts or are you going to trust the author now an expert by definition, is someone who, and, and, and whether it's the, the Latin meaning or the, the etymology of the word expert, is someone who tries, someone who tries, someone who tests, someone who learns things. So that's, that's what an expert is. The author is someone who constructed and someone who had the idea that this is what this would be and this is what that would do. So are we going to trust the experts in the world today who tell us, your family can be this or your family can be that and your family can be this and you can choose whichever one you like or are we going to trust the author who is the creator of all things who said this is what the family would be and i think the world is so confused because the devil is still using that same game plan no exactly right and so 
And, and so what happened is we've lost the proper understanding perspective of exactly what does a husband bring to a family? What does a father bring to a family? What does a mother bring to a family? You know, we've lost that um, because we've, I mean, all kinds of things, you know, shifts in the culture milieu, um, the way we think about family, I think has changed. And a lot of this is television and, and, and movies and, and, and have been pushing this whole agenda, which is really what it is. It, it's, it's an agenda. And, and so what do we see males? Males as misogynistic mm-hmm. or lazy. So you got the Homer Simpson uh, kind of fathers depicted or, or any father on the Disney channel, just complete idiots and buffoons <laughs> who cannot be taken seriously sure. um, or womanizers or whatever it may be. Um, and then you see women on the other end that are promiscuous, that are, um, you know, gossipy, that are just, you know, not very intelligent. I mean, you have all these things on both sides and these, these lies depicting who we are because they're not seeing them through the eyes of faith. They're not seeing them through even following the natural moral law that's implanted in the heart of every single person placed there by God, you know? Um, so, uh, and if we don't see ourselves um, uh, in, in that beautiful envelopment of God's love, um, then we're going to just create our, our own reality. It's exactly what our culture is doing. Absolutely. Well, let's let's drill down a little bit into those roles that we're speaking of now and look at them one by one. And so let's start with, with the man, with the father. What is the role of a man in a family? What is the role more specifically of a father? And how can we see this role modeled to us through the life of St. Joseph and the role in the Holy Family? Yeah. So first you have to understand where the idea of, of his role, role of a man as a husband and father comes from, right? So in, in Genesis chapter one, it says he put the man into the garden. In Genesis chapter two, sorry, Genesis chapter two. So he put the man in the garden to till and to keep it, right? And the word for till is abad in Hebrew. It means a work that's in the form of service. And then to uh, keep is shamar, which means to protect and defend. So literally, God is placing the man in the garden and he's giving him his purpose, his mission, his vocation, serve, protect, and defend everything I am entrusting to you. Spiritually is what's going on there. So that's his role, Mm -hmm. to serve, to protect, and to defend everything that God is entrusting to him. So that is his primary role as a man, server, protector, defender. Um, And and so John Paul II, uh, well, this is the thing. So Adam forgot that role. So when the devil came to attack his family, he stood there and said and did nothing, right? He stood there and said and did nothing. And so his, you know, so everyone wants to blame the woman, but because Adam didn't do his part in, in uh, fulfilling what God, the, the, the mission that God had given him, that also allowed his family to fail. And so uh, in correcting this, you know, we have the Holy Family, again, with Joseph doing everything faithfully that, 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 uh, um, that Adam didn't do. So in looking at this, John Paul II says, um, actually in his document for women, women, mulieris dignitatem, he says, women are more capable of men uh, to paying attention to another person, right? That's true, right? I mean, uh, once I was talking to, to my wife on the phone, I was away and, and uh, we couldn't see each other uh, FaceTime. So um, we were just talking on the phone and, um, you know, and after a while she, she just stops, she goes, you're not listening to me, are you? I'm like, how could you possibly tell that, that, which was true, by the way, but how could you tell when you can't even see my face? I mean, she could, they just know, you know, they just know. And the, the Holy Father continues, John Paul II, the man, even though he shares in the parenting relationship, always remains outside the process of pregnancy and the baby's birth. And in many ways, he has to learn his own fatherhood from the mother. <laughs> so, wow. Wait, yeah. the first time I read that, I was like, hold up. A man learns his fatherhood from the mother. And then I thought, wait a minute, you know, literally that's true. Right. So when did you find out you were going to be a dad, when, when your wife said I'm pregnant, right? So you, so, you learn your fatherhood from the mother, but I think the, uh, the Holy father is a little deeper than that. Um, I, I think what he's saying that in a woman's fiat, in a woman's yes to the gift of motherhood, 
that in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, who we pray every Sunday is Dominum et Vivificantem, the Lord and giver of life. So when a woman says yes to that gift of, of love and life in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, that gift makes possible the gift of our fatherhood, right? So, so Mary's yes made possible the fatherhood, not of God, because God's always eternally father, but the fatherhood of Joseph possible, right? Her yes yeah. to God made Joseph. So, so what does that mean? Fatherhood is not purely biological. It's not about a baby daddy. That, that's not what being a father means. Um, it comes through the very heart of God's love. So when we as men reject women, we reject the heart of God's love, we reject our own fatherhood. Wow. You know, and that's why I think um, in Ephesians chapter five, uh, St. Paul tries to get men back on track. Um, and I actually preached this homily. <laughs> I remember very clearly preaching it in, in uh, Australia. Uh, I was there on tour and the readings came up and it was at the monastery there uh, for, uh, for Sunday mass. And I, and I preached on this reading from Ephesians chapter five, verses 21 to 31, but that famous line, which everybody loves, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Right? <laughs> and I saw everybody was like, Oh, what? Oh yeah. You know, and cause what a lot of priests would do was avoid this. Sure. They do. Right? Because yeah. it's, it's usually the second reading, Yes, you know, and said, so, well, I'll, I'll do the first reading and the gospel. I'll just skip this whole thing because I don't want to talk, <laughs> but I always focus directly on this, you know, um, because it, it's, it, it gets us back to a proper understanding of husbands and fathers in families. In fact, in the New Testament for me, besides Jesus teaching um, in Matthew 19 about no divorce, this is the one I think um, that really brings it back home. So, so first of all, Paul sets up this, this what's called the pericope, this particular section of scripture, scripture in verse 21, where he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that mutual subjection one to the other, which is what we talked about in the beginning, Mark, covenant relationship. Sure, absolutely. So right from the start, he's talking about this. Remember, the covenant is, is an exchange of love and life and intimacy and communion. You know, and, and, and so that's what he talks about. That's what they're doing in that first line. Then he ends at verse 31, quoting from Genesis chapter two. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Right. And so he quotes from Genesis two the, the line that establishes the covenant. And so he starts off with covenant language. He ends with covenant language. So we don't have to be worried about what comes in the middle. Right. Oh. So when he says wise, be subject to or some translations say submissive to your husband. The word in Greek there is hupotasso. And hupotasso is a military word that was used by Roman soldiers to describe troops arranged in divisions that place themselves under the mission and direction of a leader who is typically a general. And so what St. Paul is saying is wives place yourselves under your husband's mission. What is his mission? He tells in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ show his love for the church? He died for her. Absolutely. He gave his life for her. See, when, so, when, so, you, so, when you, when you give that homily, and when you explain this, obviously after mass, if, if, if this reading comes up and the priest tries to address it and he sort of doesn't, doesn't dig down to that level, he might get people come up after mass and saying, oh, that's so old fashioned, that's so whatever. When you give this homily, do you have people come up and say, wow, I've never heard like that before. That, that just changes the whole meaning because surely that if the homily on that particular reading was delivered just like that, there wouldn't be confusion. There wouldn't be fear of having this reading crop up at weddings and things like that. No, exactly. And, and that's, you know, it's funny, Mark, because when I was in graduate school and I was studying Greek and Hebrew, I was wondering why, why do we need to notice? Just, just read the Bible. <laughs> but when you read it in the original language, you see what words actually mean yes. and the sense, because English loses, loses a lot of, of, of yeah. the actual sense of what, the, the author was trying to say. And so when you go back and look at the original language, you, you get the nuances, right? And so what St. Paul is saying is wise, place yourselves under your husband's mission. 
because his mission is to what? Serve, protect, and defend. So he goes, he goes back to the original mission, sure. right? Not, not to, not to boss his wife. Yeah. You know, not I, 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 I say everything in his house. Your job, your job is just to shut up and do everything <laughs> I tell you. That's not what St. Paul is talking about. Yeah. In fact, someone tried to argue with me. You know, um, he wrote me a letter. He goes, Deacon, you're ruining my marriage. You know, when I married my wife, I read this line to her. She said, see, you're supposed to be submissive to me. So if I told her, get me a beer, she'd get me a beer. If I told her, jump into bed, she'd jump into bed. And now she's watching you on that channel with the nun, <laughs> EWTN, right? And now you're now she's telling me my job is to serve, protect, defend. What are you doing? And after I explained to him uh, what I just explained to everyone listening and watching, um, I said, turn to Genesis 3, 16. Right. Genesis 3, 15 is the proto-evangelium of the first gospel. Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. But then verse 16, the next line is the temporal punishment for the woman. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And the word there is maushal, rule over maushal, which means to dominate like a tyrant. Hmm. See, so the fact that a man abuses his wife physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, or any other kind of way is a sad and tragic effect of original sin. It is not part of God's plan. Paul is returning us to God's plan for what a, a husband and father is supposed to be in the family. So ultimately, and what's means, so what means what his the way he shows that headship and leadership and authority is by serving. Christ gives us, the, it's Christ crucified that gives us the model. I have not come to be served, but to serve, to lay down my life, to die. So every husband and father needs to see himself on that cross. And that's, that's the model. We are to die to ourselves, to live for our wives and our children. And we see that model in St. Joseph, don't we? Like the life of the Holy Family was not an easy life. He had challenges that he had to face, not in um, his own just personal struggles, but in his role as the servant of that family, he had to pick up and relocate that family when, when Jesus's life was under threat and they had to, to flee to Egypt. And then he had to pick up and relocate that family back. And, and there were a lot of things that wouldn't have been easy for him that were part of his struggle as the head servant of that, that family, of that unit. No, exactly. And uh, remember, he was a carpenter too. So for, for much of their uh, Jesus's life is not even uh, uh, accounted for in the scriptures, you know, because he, he was a carpenter. He provided for his family. You know, some people say, well, they were destitute. They were poor. They were destitute. No, they weren't. And, and we know this because of the offering that they made when they brought uh, Jesus to the temple, the presentation, you know, there were three types of offering. There was the, the main offering. There was the middle offering and there was the lesser offering. And so the main offering was a lamb or a sheep or a goat, mm -hmm. right? It was an animal. But if you are, say you, you, you're, not, you're not wealthy because you need the animal for subsistence, right? For milk or for eggs or for whatever, you know, uh, the next was the middle offering, which were two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which we know is what they offered. What they offered so yeah. that was for like the middle to, to middle to going on lower class. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the offering they made. Then it was the lesser offering, which wasn't any kind of animal at all. It was, it was grain. Sure. was called an epath of fine flour. Epath, uh, see, I know in gallons, it's 4.9 gallons. I'm not sure what it is in, in liters. <laughs> I'll take it on that conversion. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, uh, so they offer grain. So we know that they offered that middle offering. That means they were not destitute. Mm -hmm. They were not poor. Why? Because Joseph was a carpenter. He provided for his family, sure. right? And so that was something that was also very important. And, um, and, uh, and just teaching jesus the trade so so you look at many of jesus parables he understood you know about carpentry um he understood about what life was like because joseph i'm sure they went around family walks and he would explain the culture the the agrarian culture they lived in at that time and so i'm sure jesus parables drew from not just life around him but mm -hmm. from from joseph explaining to him how the economy worked how the culture worked how you know, um, how families work. And Jesus understood and took that all in. Uh, when, so even though Joseph was, had, uh, was deceased, um, he was still, you can see still uh, Joseph's influence 
and Jesus is preaching. Sure, sure, absolutely. So that that's the role of the father in a family. Now let's move on to the mother. What's the role of a woman and specifically a mother in a family? And, and how do we see this model by Our Lady? We touched on it a little bit, but can we dig a little bit deeper into that one? Yeah, so when we see how the woman is created, um, God says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone and I'll make a helper fit for him. So why is it not good for him to be alone? Because we saw in Genesis 1, and we, and we talk, touched on this earlier, that um, God exists as a family, as a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we are made in the image likes of God, then the family on earth has to be the image likeness, in a sense, the reflection, not the actual reality, of course, but just a reflection of the family of heaven. So man by himself makes no sense. And so, um, so he says, I will make a helper fit for him, right? So, so helper is actually a compound word in Hebrew, ezetokonegdo, which means someone who stands opposite or parallel to you, who helps, aids, assists, surrounds, protects, and defends in battle, right? So oh. God wanted to create a battle partner for him. And so what's the battle going to be against? Sin and death. They fight together. Now, that's a very unusual description for a woman a battle partner. Why? Because women weren't thought of as fighters, right? As, as battlers, right? But remember what the battle is going to be against sin and death. So when they described a man who was preparing for battle in the scriptures, they would say he would gird his loins. You've heard that before. I'm sure the, yeah, the viewers absolutely. and the listeners heard that too. Oh, he girded his loins. So basically what he would do, he would take his tunic, he would cinch it up, he would pull it between his legs and tie, cinch it up and tie it around his waist. And that would free his legs to be able to freely move his legs about so he won't trip over his tunic when he's in battle. Very interesting. I found in uh, a verse in uh, Proverbs chapter 31, the very last uh, chapter of the book of Proverbs, verse uh, 11 and 17. Verse 11 says this, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Beautiful. But then comes the line 17. She girds her loins with strength and makes her arms strong. <laughs> Whoa, she girds her loins. I love that because that that's the beautiful imagery that I think Genesis is trying to reflect, um, that women are strong. I mean, it says that from, on page two of the Bible. You know, now there is a context in 2 Peter, um, uh, is it second? No, I think it's 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3 where he makes a reference that the women are the weaker sex. Okay. Now that's not a contradiction to what I just said here. And what's in Genesis two, because St. Paul is talking to a group of pagan Christians who are coming into the church, who are used to treating their women like, like chattel. And now he's saying, okay, look, you are now Christians. You can no longer treat women that way. Right. Cause your job is to serve, protect, defend. And he talks about the women being the weaker sex. Now, weaker, the word he uses there in Greek is astaneo, which means physically weaker, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean spiritually weaker, emotionally weaker, or anything like that at all, not even close. And it's why? Because they, they are weaker. That's why they have women's sports. That's why women don't compete with men in sports, because it's just, it's just there's two different dynamics going on there. You know, they, 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 they can't, you know, and, um, uh, in our uh, basketball, for example, the, the women use the smaller ball because their hands aren't as big as a man's, right? In golf, you know, uh, a par five may be, you know, um, what, maybe 280 meters or 290 meters for a guy, but maybe only 230 of 240 meters for a woman. Why? Because they don't hit as far. It has nothing to do with their dignity as a person or what they're like before God. It's just acknowledging the fact that yeah. they're not as physically strong as men. So men should not use that to abuse them, sure. but through the eyes of faith, serve, protect, and defend. Yeah. And so, and so he goes about creating this battle partner for the man by taking out a rib out the side. Now, um, why a rib, right? Because if you're going to build a battle partner against the forces of evil, against the force of sin and death, use a big bone, right? Like a femur or a, or a parietal or occipital or temporal or, or, or humerus or, you know, patella or something like that. Um, 
he uses a rib simply this. If he used a, lo- a bone from the lower part of the body, she'd be less than him. If you use a bone from the upper part of the body, she'd be greater than him. Use a rib from the side to show that she's equal to him, right? Equal in dignity before God. Now, what's interesting is the word that's used in Hebrew is not rib. It's selah, which means side. So if you read it in Hebrew, it says he took his side and created her. And that's important. If you look at a crucifix, right, and you see that the, the, the piercing on Jesus's side, Longinus spears him and blood and water flows out. And so St. John Chrysostom and some of the other fathers of the church would say the church was born from the side of Christ. Blood and water came out, blood for the Eucharist, water for baptism. That's the church is born from the side of Christ. The bride comes forth from the side of the bridegroom. If you look at Genesis, the bride comes forth from the side of the bridegroom. Beautiful image there, which ties the family and marriage right to the crucifix. Yes. Right, right, right back to the crucifix, because um, uh, Christ was born into a family, and He died and shed His blood to start a new family, which is the church. That's beautiful. Yeah, that imagery is just so spectacular, isn't it? How it all just fits together so perfectly. Um, so, speaking then directly about Our Lady and, and the role that she played, and we did speak a little bit about the struggles as uh, having to see her son die before she did, and, and all of that, but. But in the, in the more day-to-day sort of life, what role would she have played in Jesus' life? And, and, and how, is, how should that be mirrored in the lives of mothers today? Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, you know, women are uh, the monstrous, right? Because what made Mary so special? She held in her womb the word of God. <laughs> and, and, and John tells us, prologue, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So that word of God, through whom God the Father spoke the word through the Spirit, everything came into being existence. She's holding that in her womb. So in a, in a very real sense, she was the first monstrance. And every woman that's pregnant is the monstrance, right? She holds that beautiful life. I, 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 as a man, I can't even imagine what it's, what it's like to have another person inside of me. i like growing and moving around but for women it's just very natural you know they just like oh it's just i mean you know it's it's a whole different relationship you know so mothers have a very different relationship with their children than the fathers do because of the dynamic of that child living inside the mother for nine months and then literally being nurtured and fed by the 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 body and blood of that of the mother and then the child comes out and is breastfed again by the mother um, literally receiving his life from her love. Sure. You know, that's, that's, I mean, as a man, I'm like, wow, that's so, that's, that's really incredible. That's intense. Mm. But I, we don't have that experience because our job is to serve, protect and defend, right? Yeah. The, the, the mother's role then is to be that monstrance. Um, Mary was the new Ark of the Covenant. So she held life in her in a way that we men will never understand or appreciate. Every woman does. So imagine what we should be doing as men is looking at our wives and seeing the monstrance. Even as a single man, looking at a, a, a beautiful, attractive woman, is, and instead of looking at her as an object of pleasure and gratification, as the way the culture wants you to, you look at her and you see the monstrance. That's what makes her beautiful. It's not just the aesthetics of how she looks. Yes, there's that too, but the deeper level, the God level is seeing that she's the monstrance that she, that, and to guard and our husbands and fathers to guard and protect her sanctity, her holiness, to guard and protect the fact that she has that life, not to drive her to the abortion clinic, but mm. to protect that life that's in there, just as Joseph did that. And Joseph did it without saying a word because his actions spoke louder than his words, right? Yeah. And then so when Mary went to see her cousin Elizabeth, that was the first Eucharistic procession, yeah. <laughs> right? And in, in that sense, we're all like Mary, because when we receive the Eucharist at Mass, we literally have God in us. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, I put it in air quotes, right? In a sense, we're pregnant, right? Um, because we have God's life in us, like, like Mary, of course, until the Eucharist breaks down, it's no longer, right? 
but but we have God's life in us. You know, um, it's an amazing thing to think about. An absolutely amazing thing to think about. I, I don't um, know if it was you that I heard tell this story, or I can't remember if it was you or someone else, but the story of this priest who week in, week out at mass, he would, he would go through and distribute communion. And he would notice that after communion, there would be one woman that would just duck out straight away, duck out straight away. Uh, he didn't quite know why she was doing it, but he was worried that she wasn't understanding exactly what it was that she'd received and, and couldn't even just spend two or three minutes just in quiet prayer. And, and in that time with our Lord, who was now inside her. And, and one day, in preparation, knowing that this would be the case again, he sent the two altar servers with their candles. And as this woman went ducking out the door, they were walking side by side with her, holding the candles. And she's like, what are you doing? But they were basically, it was the Eucharistic procession. She was the monstrance. She had just received our Lord and, and he was still physically there present inside of her. And it was the priest's way of showing this lady that don't just run out. You're not done this, as soon as you've received communion. You can't just duck out. Even if you've got somewhere to go, make the time just to acknowledge who it is you've received, who it is inside you. And I thought that was, it was a little bit bold of the priest maybe to do that, but I think it painted a good picture that that is our Lord inside of you. And as soon as you duck out the door, you're taking our Lord physically at that point, taking our Lord with you. So I thought that was, yes, a little bold, but a beautiful way to demonstrate that. So, no, now, that's, that's powerful, especially at least in, in, in the United States where we have, you know, 70% of Catholics don't believe that Jesus is really present body, blood, soul, divinity, and the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, so, so the, the priest and stuff like that, I think is, is very beautiful, which yeah. again, goes back to the, the whole silence and adoration, right? I think it's a yes. beautiful piece of that. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I think one of the most poignant moments for me is when Mary greets Elizabeth. Because remember, Elizabeth now is uh, in, her, in her second trimester with John the Baptist, maybe her third trimester. And Mary's still in her first trimester. So when they meet and Mary greets Elizabeth, says, when the greeting reached my ears, the child of my womb leapt for joy. Now, a couple of things that tells about motherhood, right? That they're in tune with their children's feelings and emotions more mm -hmm. so than a man. How does she know that that particular leap was for joy? Not like, oh, I'm in pain or, oh, I need, I'm hungry. Or how did she know that that was for joy? Because a mother can tell, you know, <laughs> mother's got that beautiful connection. Yes. And, and, and uh, so that tells us a couple of things that first of all, John the Baptist recognized the presence of Jesus in the monstrance. Right. And so he was that he was, he was the first adored. That was adoration. <laughs> the monsters walked in and John the Baptist began to, to adore. That's beautiful. And also he recognized the presence of Christ in the voice of the blessed mother, because it wasn't until she spoke. They said, when the greeting reached my ears, then the child of my womb leapt for joy. So he also recognized the presence of Christ in the voice of Mary. The mother, sure. Right? The mother. And so that's why men should listen to their wives. You know, I mean, I, I, and I say that sincerely. I'm not saying it as, as a pejorative thing or as a joke. I mean, you know, I truly believe in my heart that the Holy Spirit speaks through my wife. And so if I don't listen to her, I'm really not fulfilling my full fatherhood. Right. Remember, the, the man learns his fatherhood from the mother. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I have. And so in exercising that fatherhood, I have to listen to her because remember, uh, she's also the Azera Conegdo, the battle partner came from the side. Yes. Right. So so we're in this battle together. The two of us are one. The two yes. of us are now one. Jesus emphasized this twice in Matthew 19. We talked about divorce. So you are not only does he quote from Genesis 2, but he, he says again. So the two of you are not no longer two, but one. He emphasized that particular verse from Genesis, um, from Genesis 2, because that was his point. You're both one now. You know, it, um, it's almost it's almost like she's nearly nearly his conscience in a way they're there they have to sort through life together and they're there they're battle partners as you say together and he ultimately has to make the final decision in his role as the leader but chief servant he has to make the final decision that will best serve his wife and his children but she's like his conscience if he if he doesn't choose to listen to her and listen to her input He's kidding himself if he thinks he knows what he can choose, what's best for them, if he's not even allowing his battle partner to have input in that decision-making process. Yeah, see, and this reverses what happened. Well, well two, two points I want to make here. Um, 
first of all, um, this reverses what happened in the garden. So remember, Eve had taken the fruit of the tree and eaten it, mm-hmm. and then he took it and ate it. Mm-hmm. And, and remember, the when when God's handing out the punishment in Genesis chapter a little bit later in Genesis chapter three, says because you listened to your wife, right? Because you listened to because he wasn't listening to her with the ear of his heart because it was you know it was a selfish reason. We're going to be like God, so that was the motivation. See, but now when you when 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 you look at how we're looking at, at motherhood and fatherhood now, seeing through the, the way that God ordained that to be exercised, when a man listens to his wife, it's not a, first of all, it's not a sign of weakness on his part. I think he'd be a fool if he didn't listen to her. Sure. Because they are one. You're right. She's, in a sense, his, his conscience, right? And so he has to listen to that voice and allow that voice to shape the decisions he makes. Uh, like as you said so beautifully, Mark, are the best interests of his of his family, not of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a death there. We talked, we talked about the crucifix before. He has to see himself up on that crucifix, and just as Christ was that outpouring of love that came from the cross, he has to have that same outpouring of love for his family. And just like Mary was at the foot of the cross, his wife is right there, and all the decisions that have to be made. Now, now let me uh, let me say this. There are times uh, when, you know, my, and, and of course, husbands and wives should make decisions together. Duh. Right. I mean, that, that should be happening. But there may be times where you can't make a decision together. And sometimes the wife may defer the, res- the decision to her husband. Now, why would she do that? Not because she's not smart, not because she does, you know, doesn't trust her own decision making skills. But if she honestly believes that the husband is living his, 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 his fatherhood and his husband from the cross, then she can trust with complete confidence that he can make the decision because I know the decision he made will be in my best interest, the best interest of our children. Sure. That's, that's the family dynamic that, that God set up. And that's the way where we should be exercising uh, the, the, the life of the family. You know, but again, we, we, we let too much of the culture come in and it chips away and destroys what we're talking. We're not talking about is, is some is, is some panacea, you know, um, that that can never be reached. Some kind of ideal that's so far up there that no, no. We're talking. This is the, the 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 tangible reality that Christ challenges the family with. Because look, marriage is the cross, man. Mm. Marriage is the cross. You know what is in Psalm ninety? What does Moses say? In Psalm ninety was written by Moses. Our span is seventy years or 80 for those who are strong. And most of these are emptiness and pain. They pass swiftly and we are gone. Oh, huh? So most of life is the cross. Marriage is the cross, you know? Um, uh, but remember, what, where, where are we lead, Where is he leading us to with that cross though? It's not the end, right? There's, there's Easter Sunday after Good Friday. There's resurrection after crucifixion. Um, and, and so we have to deal with the joys and the sorrows, just like the Holy Family did. There were tremendous joys. And as we walked through earlier, Mark, at the beginning of this of the podcast, um, tremendous sorrows also that the family uh, was allowed to endure so they could truly experience the depth of family life with all its joys and with all its sorrows. Everything really does happen in seasons. There's a season of sorrow, but there will always be another season of joy that follows, if not in this life, definitely in the life to come, if, if we have properly prepared ourselves for that, that season of eternal joy. So, so that's looking now at, at, at motherhood. Let's look finally at the, the role, and I think we're running short of time here, but let's look at the role of children in this whole dynamic and, and look at Jesus' example as the child of the Holy family, the example that he sets for, for children in, in families these days. Well, it, it, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, when they, when they travel back then they traveled in family caravans. And so here they are in Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, the, the city was just massive compared to Nazareth, which is like in the middle of nowhere. Right. I mean, cause what do they say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right. It's like <laughs> this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And so now they're in the big city, like New York, right? Or Sydney. And, and they lose Jesus. Now, Jesus stayed behind on purpose so he could worry his parents. <laughs> I'm sure. Now, 
but, but I mean, I imagine you get back to the airport and you're about to, to go back to, to your city and you take a head count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, where's Jesus? Well, he's missing. I mean, what your when your kids is missing. So yeah. they, they got like, wait, they're already a day into the trip on the way back because they thought he was with some other family members, probably. And they said, you seen Jesus? No, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And so they have to go back and find him, you know, and, and when they do find him, um, you know, Mary is, uh, if you look in the Greek, she goes, why did you do this to us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you Because know, she's, I mean, she's, she's a mom. She's upset. You were gone for three days. And she, I'm sure she's worried about, oh, my goodness, he doesn't have anything to eat. He's sleeping in the cold. He's going to get sick and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and Joseph is like doing the grid search, you know, systematically looking every place, retracing their steps. <laughs> And they would have been terrifying him and, for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and he says, uh, you know, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? Just kind of nonchalant. Did you not know I had to be? No, we didn't know that, <laughs> you know? And so, and, but it says he was obedient to them, right? Sure. Cause I'm sure he saw the, the heartache that he caused them not doing it on purpose, obviously. Um, but same thing. I think kids have to realize, especially when they get in those very, difficult teenage years because there's a natural separation when there's there guess what i'm not attached to my parents you Mm -hmm. know because when they're little they kind of feel that they're part of you yes and then they realize when they get this independence that wait a minute i am not attached to my parents i can have my own way of thinking and and so it's during and then it's particularly during that time i believe where the father's role really kicks in when, during those teenagers where they're trying to navigate their way through life. So when they're younger, there's the emotional development that the mother gives to them. Um, and then later on, it's the navigating through life to help them think their way through this culture, to understand the connection between faith, their faith and their everyday lived experience. So the faith is not just something we do on Sunday. The faith is how we live. You see, it's not just another thing we take off a list. The faith is actually central to who we are as as the core of our family life is our faith is that relationship with jesus christ so that's what we should be fostering in the home and so children then are to take that um and, and then as they as they discover their own path discover how what god is calling them to with the gifts and talents they've been given by god they're supposed to to take that and to um then go out into the world uh, to discover how God is going to use them to glorify him. But what the, the parent's job is to lay a foundation in that child's life, right? Because mm-hmm. before you build any, any new construction, the first thing you do is you have to dig down. The first thing oh. you do is dig down into the ground. You have to dig a foundation upon which that building will stand. And, and so that's our job as parents to lay a foundation in the lives of our children so that their life with the Lord will stand strong. Because our job is not to build the house of our children's lives. Right. Psalm 127, one of the two Psalms written by uh, Solomon, the other one was Psalm 72. Psalm 127 says, if the Lord does not build the house in vain, do the builders labor. Right. So the Lord has to build the house of our children's lives with them. You know, not the parents don't build the house. We lay a foundation upon which the house of our children's lives we built with God. But we have to give them that foundation. And it's a and when that foundation is laid, then they will hear us differently, mm-hmm. right? They they'll start to listen to us with the ear of their heart, not just pick up your room, go mow the lawn, go take out the garbage, go. No, it's not just a series of commands. They're hearing what they're hearing is this is what it means to be part of a family, right? And I'm sure Jesus had to take out the garbage and do chores and all that kind of stuff too, because he's part of a family. So, so there's a deeper reality here of what it means to be part of a family. Um, and, and that when they're listening to their parents, when they're, when they're looking at the culture and they're taking in what their parents are saying to them, they'll realize that their ultimate happiness and fulfillment will come from a deep, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is something that the culture, sex, drugs, alcohol, and their friends can't even begin to give them, right? So they have to, under, they, kids need to understand that we parents would rather die than to see them participate in self-destructive activity, right? They, they need to know that we would gladly take their place if it meant that they would be safe and secure and healthy. Young people need to know that we love them, 
more than they will ever know. But our love for them doesn't even come close to the love that God has for them. We're supposed to be mirroring the love of God in the way that we live our family life so that when they leave that house, they have some understanding of what it means to be in relationship with God. Right. And that, I mean, and it's from that core that they start to make decisions. Am I still going to go to church once I'm no longer, I no longer have to, I'm no longer with my parents. What's going to make them want to go to church on their own because they are choosing Mm -hmm. to put Jesus first in their life. They're making a decision. Is God calling me to the priesthood or to religious life or to marriage? How are they going to actively discern that call? See, that's what the foundation that we give them will lead them to a deep, rich life with God, however God calls them uh, to that life. So we need to encourage them. We, we, when we, as parents, uh, see a gift or a talent that they're expressing to nurture that and foster that. If they're, if the little kid is playing priest when he's six years old, seven years old, he puts on a little, like a towel around his shoulders, like it's supposed to be a chasuble and he has a little mass set. He's playing mass. Yeah. Maybe he has a vocation there. You know, so you need to foster that and encourage that, you know, and you see your daughter praying all the time. Maybe she wants to be, you know, a a nun, you know, and and maybe she's playing with her dolls all the time. Okay. She's going to be a great mom. Just, just never know, but you have to look for that and really pay attention to that and help foster the great gifts that God has given your child so that God, so that God can use those gifts in that child to honor him. Absolutely. You've painted a beautiful picture of all those roles within that family and, and how they all tie together so beautifully and how the author of all this just obviously knew what he was doing. Like you can't refute that when you see it painted in this way, but we'll, we'll just, just loop back quickly just before we finish and touch on something we spoke about before is that not every family is father, mother, children. And for sometimes very genuinely, um, Uh, difficult reasons, whether it's death or whether it's abuse or whatever it is that's led to that, for a family that's in that situation that doesn't have this ideal that we are speaking of, their family is still equally real. So let's just take the example, just to take one of a family where a father's been killed in in a car accident and it's the mother with the children, single mother. How important is it to find men as fatherly figures for the children not obviously can't replace the father, but to try and do their best to give them something that that mother is not physically, biologically even able to give them. Yeah. And I'm sure, again, remember we talked about the fact that Joseph was deceased and Mary became yeah. a single mom. So she was in that same situation. And of course the scriptures don't tell us because that's during the silent years of Christ, but I'm sure because my mother did the same thing. Mm-hmm. She, it was extremely important to her to find male role models again not to take the place of the dad but to to show them what authentic manhood looks like so that they're not missing that part of their natural development um to see that side of parenthood right so again it's not their dad but um but these other male figures that will show them what it means to be to live an authentic uh, uh manhood to serve protect defend because that's the model because like for, for example um how do you channel that teenage energy, right? Like, so when my kids were, when my son was small, he used to have all this energy and wanted to like take things up and beat things with it. So we used to play fight and I used to throw him around and let, let, let him like fake that he was flipping me over and stuff like that. Cause I want him to feel my strength as his father. Mm-hmm. And I want him to be able to channel that strength, that energy in very positive directions to serve, protect, and defend. Cause what happens with teenagers oftentimes um, when they don't have that, that's how they get to gangs because they're looking for that fatherhood figure. If they don't find it in godly men, then they will find it in a street gang. They will find it with their friends who are looking at drugs and porn. They will find it in the occult, mm-hmm. right? They will find it in these other avenues that are to lead to destructive behavior, you know? So it is very important. And the same thing on the other side, if the father's by himself, the mother's not there, mm-hmm. you know, to, to find other women in the life that are again, mother, again, not taking the place of the mom, but have that motherly figure so that they can see uh, how to express authentic love, uh, how, how to, to channel positive emotions, you know, and things like that. So they're, they're balancing again, not in a perfect way because life is not perfect, man, right? Life is not, I mean, but to try to find that balance um, uh, with the gifts that, that, that husbands and and fathers bring and and wives and mothers bring to that relationship. So yes, it's not perfect because life is not perfect, but at least, 
they're getting an understanding and an appreciation because, and that's what exactly what happened to me. I mean, I, uh, you can see the effects of my family, you know, um, my brother never got married and, and I have two siblings that are married and divorced. Um, and I'm the only one I've been married 27 years now, you know, so, 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 but I made the decision to put Christ first in my life. I made the decision that, you know, my marriage is not going to be like, I'm not my father. You know, I don't have to do the same things that he did. I can live differently than he did. But it's more than just doing, not doing what he did, the, following the mistakes that he made. It's actually putting Christ in my life first. Sure. You know, and so and so my mom did that for me, like my wrestling coach. Uh, when I was in Boy Scouts, you know, my scout master, mm -hmm. um, uh, my, one of my uh, history teachers in high school. I mean, these were men that modeled for me authentic manhood. And, and I'm grateful to them because they helped me to become the, the, the man that I am today. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Deacon Harold. You paint a beautiful picture and, and you paint it from the scriptures. You can demonstrate right back from the start why it was created the way it was created and why this is what is best going to serve the immediate family, but also the, the wider community around us. So, so thank you very much for your knowledge and your wisdom on, on this topic. I, I really pray that it's, it's beneficial to all those listeners out there. Um, and yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the discussion. So thank you so much, Deacon Harold, for your time today. Thank you, Mark. Great to be with you. And, and for all of those who want to, to know more about Deacon Harold and the work that he's doing, you can visit him at his website, deaconharold.com. And for anyone wanting more information about Perusia, you can also visit perusiamedia.com. So thank you all for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have enjoyed it, please share it with your family and friends. And also in your favorite podcast app, if you could leave a rating and maybe leave a few words of, of comment as a review, that would be great in helping to, to spread this podcast around. Uh, thank you so much once again for your time. I look forward to being with you all next time around on Speaking with Deacon. My name is Mark Griffin. God bless you all.